What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Bus Driver Experience. This is episode 22, I believe. 22 on the bus. No, no. Bus Driver Experience. On the bus is the old show. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I uh, hope you're enjoying these shows out there in quarantine, wherever you are, isolating, non-isolating. I hope all of you are staying safe. Hope you're staying well. And I hope some of the content that, we, that I'm putting out here um, is helping you and benefiting you, whether it's an entertainment or education way. That's what I'm looking to do here with these shows is... Uh, talk with some of the most interesting, fascinating people and some of the best experts on topics and things that uh, are relevant to you and myself. And today's guest is one of those, again, uh, evolutionary biologist, Scott Solomon, uh, who's a professor and science communicator at Rice University. He teaches evolutionary biology, scientific communication, and he's the author of Future Humans, Inside the Science of the Continued Evolution. Um, And he is a former guest on the show of the old podcast. Um, he is a science communicator. And what that means is that he not only teaches how to express different scientific ideas that, you know, some people in this, in the, uh, education space need to express to the lay person or any person that they want to uh, express their ideas or studies and, um, what they're, what they're learning in the space. And he's a great communicator on those things. I ask him a lot of things on, you know, uh, the most recent topics, uh, COVID-19, um, disease, the spread of disease. And we also get into the future of things, you know, where, uh, we're going as a human species, where we've come from and, uh, how that looks like an outer space. And if we're moving from colony to colony on the moon, on Mars, um, he is incredible. I have links to his books in the bio. I have links to some of his talks online and like what I do guys, uh, and guys and gals, a lot of people you want to talk to, it's just an email away. People are there to teach you. They're there to talk with you. They're able to either express what they're learning, what they're understanding, but it all starts with you. You got to reach out to these people to learn. So I'm super excited to bring you this podcast. We got Dr. Scott Solomon. Okay. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another bus driver experience. Uh, today, I'm joined by Scott Solomon. He is a biologist, professor, science communicator. Uh, he teaches ecology, evolutionary biology, and scientific communication. He is the author of Future Humans, which I've read for the third time now because I had him back on the show. And it's uh, an insight into the science of our continuing evolution. And um, it's an incredible read. And I'm excited to bring Dr. Uh, Doctor, right? Yep. The, the title is always important. I always give people another with their teachers or professors or actual medical doctors. I always call them doc. People are like, why do you do that? It's like, it's out of respect. They, they had to go and put their time in to get that thing, to get that degree. So how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, thanks. Um, I hope everybody who is watching can see or is, or if you're not, if you are listening to this, you got to go watch the video. We are uh, not live. We're live from the Amazon where uh, you actually worked um, on your, one of your trips back a year ago. Uh, and it's funny that I think we were both in the same area of the Amazon when I was down there in 2015 and, um, you were down there on a research project for, uh, the university. Yeah, that's right. This was a, a trip with a group of Rice alumni and, um, I had done some research in the area as well. Um, going back to, um, I guess it was, uh, 2004. Uh, it's just an incredible part of the world. Just amazing. It, it really is. I mean, it, even it's funny, we both uh, detailed and described the same way we got there. You go two hours until the road ends, then you get on a boat. I mean, ours is powered by a little lawnmower that gets put into the, <laughs> into the river. 
and then that pushes you forward and then you just keep going until you get to where you have to go it's it's amazing that river is just so big so massive and just you know the amount of wildlife it's almost it's almost weird when you're down there because even like in Colombia too um there's just so much rainforest there's so much lush beautiful um you know jungle and forest habitats and you know it's it's weird once you're there and you never see at least i didn't see that anything being torn down but you know the videos well yeah i mean god i was just gonna say i i I was actually uh at this site here uh during the height of um the you know the fires that were very much in the news last summer across the amazon and so i was really aware of that as we were in the region and was really trying to keep an eye out for that. And as we were, even as we were flying in and out, I was, um, I had a window seat and I was looking out to try to see if I could see any evidence of fires. And luckily we couldn't where we were, but it just emphasizes what you're saying about how vast the region is. I mean, even though a lot of the region was experiencing fires at that time, um, there was nothing that we could see in our region, which was encouraging, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, nevertheless, uh, we know that those problems were happening elsewhere. Yeah. I, uh, hope whatever the case may be, I know it's a blend and a mix of, um, increasing agriculture, whether it is for soy or whether it's for livestock, um, you know, it's a wide range of things that, you know, or just, you know, human population, the, the need to continuously feed our machine, whatever you want to call it, capitalism, our markets, our economy. Um, the only way to go is continuous growth. And, you know, it's kind of impeding on uh, the world around us. You know, as much as we are in control as a species on this planet, we can really dictate, you know, how um, our environments, we can be very in control of our environments. But, you know, what we're seeing with this pandemic is, you know, we can only push that so far till you know something i wouldn't call it a correction you know it's just um it's almost like a perfect storm i mean how how would you describe it like yeah i mean and there are actually i mean you know to tie the two the two topics together there are connections between what's happening in wild places like the amazon and the pandemic we're experiencing because um you know we know we've known even before the the covid19 pandemic that a lot of the diseases that we face as humans um, have come about when a disease that had been infecting an animal host switches hosts and starts to infect humans. And those types of events are more likely the more that we make incursions into these wild places, the places that these wild animals exist. Um, So unfortunately, it is one of the expected consequences of deforestation of the wildlife trade of uh, increased human population sizes that we experience uh, these new emerging infectious diseases. Yeah. Now, isn't it two ways because isn't, um, you know, just agriculture and livestock since, you know, let's say Mesopotamia 8,000 years ago and we start living in these clustered areas um, that, you know, once we start living with these livestock and living with these animals, you know, I think what smallpox comes from cows or pigs. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I think it's uh, just being that closely tied with mammals and diseases like the like a COVID-19, like a coronavirus, like an H1N1, are very can easily jump from species to species. Um, I don't know, mammalians are species, or is that a, a class of kingdom of uh, the animals? Right, right. So, so you're right. It can be um, uh, mammals or also birds. So most of these infectious diseases 
Um, you, you know, you mentioned a few of them, uh, but there's also, you know, influenza, obviously, but also, you know, HIV, right? Um, uh, uh, Ebola, uh, the plague, anthrax, um, all of these are diseases that were infecting um, either a bird or a mammal. And you're right that in some cases it is livestock, um, but in other cases it's, uh, it's, it's wild animals that uh, we, we come into contact with one way or another. And it's, it's remarkable. I mean, especially because rats, we forget that we use rats a lot to test on whether it's going to be a new uh, vaccine or even makeup. I mean, we, we test a lot of things on those because they have a very similar, um, I guess, makeup, um, genetic makeup to us that, you know, we can kind of test out what our side effects, negative or positive going to be. And then you think about what is it? Millions and tens of millions live within us in these cities, but they're also like big, big carriers of diseases that can get spread and passed on to us. Like you mentioned the plague, you know, the bubonic plague, you know, it took, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years, but once it made it from Central Asia over, you know, it started to it just ravage, um, was it Europe, you know, two thirds of the population mm -hmm. perished, you know, it's, um, so again, it's nothing new, but you know, why is it that a lot of these things can be traced back towards, I wouldn't say all of them, you know, we were talking about swine flu was definitely, it was Mexican or uh, American uh, pigs that had that one passed over. But why is the majority of them coming from uh, Asia or Central Asia? Well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm probably not the best person to, to answer that question. Um, I mean, I think it probably has to do with a combination of, uh, you know, the exact types of animals that are uh, people are coming into contact with their, um, you know, human population densities might be a factor as well. You've got some of the, you know, highest population densities in the world um, in some parts of Asia. But I think you're right. These diseases can come from anywhere, um, you know, and it's, and it's really difficult to predict where the next one is going to come from. I mean, we, uh, we know, though, that there will continue to be new emerging infectious diseases uh, essentially forever, right? I mean, as long as we um, are living here on Earth, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, another possible topic that we could get in, we got into last time. But yeah, uh, yeah we, we, uh, we are going to always have uh, new emerging infectious diseases as long as we share this planet with uh, birds and mammals. Uh, so COVID-19, unfortunately, is not going to be uh, the last of these uh, new infectious diseases that we'll face. Yeah, and I, I want people to know, I mean, wet markets, you know, aren't um, unique to just uh, Asia. I mean, I know we've both been to South America. I'm sure you've seen, you know, a wide range of things, especially being in the Amazon, that are skinned and hanging from, you know, the street with blood, uh, the blood of the animal just dripping right in there. You know, it's, it's common, sure. it's prevalent, and a lot of people, you know, got to put their stereotypes and biases down because most of these people are doing this either because they don't have food. They don't have much stuff to eat or they don't have a market uh, to make money. And for some reason, there is a ridiculous demand on just very exotic products, tigers, rhino horn, and what's sold in these markets. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but people have to, you know, understand, you know, the circumstances and situations that, you know, n very unprivileged people have to go through to make a living and to, That's to right. eat. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, um, it's very difficult uh, to, to put yourself in that situation if you come from a more privileged background. But yeah, you know, people have to feed their families. And if the best option for feeding your family is to go off into the forest 
um, and, you know, bring back a, an animal that you can feed your family with for um, a couple of days or longer, uh, or to uh, bring back an, uh, an animal that you'd be able to sell at a market because people elsewhere in the world are willing to pay a lot of money for it. Well, that in turn allows you to buy, you know, food and supplies for your family for a long time. And that's what drives people around the world is, you know, wanting to care for themselves and their families. And so, you know, the best thing we can do is to try to create other opportunities for those people, uh, improve their, their um, you know, their economies and their access to resources so that there isn't that, uh, that need. Mm-hmm. There's a deeper talent. Before we go into, you know, the book, uh, the book again, Evolution, I wanted to take it back one more time because um, I know a lot of people had doubt on the, you know, the passing or the jumping of the disease from, you know, in the mammalian uh, animal kingdom. Uh, maybe could you explain a little bit more in deeper, you know, the, bio- the biology side of how and why these things um, are so similar, um, or at least why these diseases can spread between very similar uh, species within the same kingdoms. Like we said, and, sure. and birds, which are not in the same, uh, are not mammals themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you were saying before, it's quite common actually for, for uh, infectious diseases to jump hosts. Uh, uh, what biologists referred to as a zoonosis is the technical term, um, but a, a more friendlier term might be spillover. There's a great book, actually a popular book by a science writer, David Quammen, uh, called Spillover, which uh, gives a, a fantastic account um, of sort of the you know, many examples of how uh, these types of diseases have switched hosts. Um, and you know, we're talking about diseases that might be caused by a virus, as is the case for um, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, um, you know, in the case of HIV, um, or it could be a uh, bacterium, or it could be a, uh, a protist, which is a, a single-celled uh, eukaryotic organism. It's actually more similar to, to our cells. Um, but in either case, you know, these, these um, infectious diseases are parasites. They make their living uh, by taking resources from a host and they can't live without a host. This is very much true in the case of viruses. Viruses um, in general cannot uh, replicate on their own. They require a host in order to replicate. And biologists actually even debate whether they should be considered living things or not because they lack the ability to, um, to do the basic function of reproduction on their own. They have to have a host in order to reproduce. And as you can imagine, the host's immune systems are pretty well attuned to trying to prevent that from happening. So you, what you get is this kind of arms race between parasites and hosts. And because of that, the hosts are always getting better and better at trying to prevent the infection of these parasites. And in turn, the parasites get better and better at infiltrating the defenses of the hosts. One of the things that results in is a sort of a specialization between a a parasite and its host. Most parasites are really only capable of infecting certain types of hosts because they have to be so good at getting past those defenses. And that's why um, it's not typically possible for the same type of disease to infect a human and a very distantly related animal like say, you know, a, um, a reptile or a fish, those are so different from us that um, the host would uh, have such a very different type of immune system and those parasites are unlikely to be able to infect both types of hosts. But we're close enough in our biology 
to other mammals, to many other mammals, and even to birds, which are, are still fairly distantly related to us, but our, our bodies function in similar ways. So what it means is that these parasites are able to switch hosts and, um, and, and start to infect uh, this new host. Um, and so, so that's sort of the, the, the very basic biology of it, I, I, I guess. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. we could get into some more, some more specifics if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. I think you mentioned, um, you know, there's certain, there's certain targets or certain uh, animals. I'll, I'll, you know, I include us in there. We're talking about animals. Um, what makes us prime targets for disease? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes humans a prime target for disease is just that there's so many of us, right? I mean, we've got, we're, we're uh, coming up on 8 billion people in the human population. And uh, with so many of us, it just means that we're a bigger bullseye for, uh, for, you know, for an infectious disease that needs a host. Um, but other factors include the fact that we're social, right? I mean, humans, mm -hmm. we live in, um, in, uh, societies in which we, at least normally, interact closely with one another. We come into close physical contact with other people on a regular basis. I mean, we've all become very keenly aware of this now because we're trying to do all the social distancing to prevent that uh, spread. But the reality is that um, that's built into our DNA. We are social um, uh, organisms. And all of those interactions that we have with other people, whether it's a handshake or a kiss on the cheek or just, you know, a pat on the shoulder or sitting next to somebody for a meal, all of those are opportunities for a host to, to for a parasite to switch from one host to another. And then add on top of that our, um, our globalization that we've seen in the last century or so that makes it so easy for a parasite to make it from uh, one continent to another uh, just by, you know, being uh, um, on a host that hops on an airplane and goes for a you know, transcontinental flight. So, you know, you combine all of those things. Um, oh, and the fact that actually genetically, we are actually very similar to one another. From one human to another, there are very few genetic differences. Um, and that actually makes us an even easier target for a parasite. When I say very few genetic differences, what I mean is that although, you know, obviously there are, you know, some differences in the genomes of people um, from, you know, different backgrounds, different regions, different uh, ethnicities or races. Um, if you compare the differences among different humans to the differences among our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, gorillas, it turns out that um, individual chimpanzees have far more differences um, from one to another than what we see even between uh, the most distantly related human populations. We are very, very genetically similar to one another. And that just makes it that much easier for a, uh, a parasite to, um, to sort of crack the, the code, so to speak, and uh, figure out ways to infect one of us, which makes it easy for them to infect uh, most, if not all of us. Yeah, I think we mentioned that uh, last time on the show, um, because we branched out from, we call it Southeastern Africa, that the farther the humans that went away, let's say all the way to the tip of South America, are going to have less diversity in their genome, because there's less of them who have made it there and less who have uh, multiplied from that scenario. So would anything, people in Africa, even today, have more diverse 
if anything, they would have the most diverse uh, DNA or genetic code than people who have expanded farther away. That's correct, right? That's right. That's right. The greatest amount of genetic diversity we see in humans is on the continent of Africa and on, among populations that are descended from Africans. And basically the genetic diversity gets lower as you move overland from Africa, um, as sort of as people traveled out of Africa into um, the Middle East, into Europe, into Asia, and then um, from Asia into the uh, uh, Oceania, the you know, Oceanic Islands, mm -hmm. uh, Australia, and then across the Bering Strait and into North and South America. And so, yeah, that, that uh, lower and lower genetic diversity reflects the uh, spread of our ancestors across the globe. Yeah, the human expansion out of Africa is just such an incredible story, especially when, um, you know, we know from fossil records, like, um, and water lines, just, you know, from the Bering Strait being exposed and people being able to walk over this land bridge and the same thing. I don't, I don't think a lot of people know is in Oceania and there's all those islands um, between mainland Asia and Australia, that was just all land right there. And you could just walk all the way across towards Australia. You know, and you think almost all the way. Okay. There, yeah, there's a few places where um, the the water uh, was always deep enough that there would have been some ocean crossings that was that were necessary. And there's actually some interesting uh, scientific history there because uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was Darwin's contemporary and co-discovered the theory of of evolution by natural selection, he actually figured out that there must be deep water. Um, in a certain area, uh, sort of between the island of, of Bali and the next uh, uh, adjacent island to the east, uh, Lombok. Because even though the islands look pretty much similar, there's completely different types of animals. Uh, on Bali, you get more Asian uh, fauna, and then on Lombok, you get more uh, Australian-type fauna. And he couldn't figure out why until he realized there are other islands nearby that share that same pattern. It's become known as Wallace's line. And it actually reflects deep water in the region um, that would even at very, very low sea levels not have been um, a land bridge. Uh, but you're right that to the west of that would have been all connected to Southeast Asia. That's amazing. I think, um, are you familiar with Graham Hancock? He's wouldn't be deemed as a pseudoscience, but he pushes the bounds from this, these uh, potential historical um, new findings like in Globeki Tepe. Um, I forgot the one in um, Indonesia or Southeast Asia might have been. Um, these uh, civilizations that have been found that, are little, that date a little bit older than Mesopotamia. We're talking uh, 11,600, either 12,800 or 11,600 years ago. Um, the one in Turkey, they've actually found this whole entire city filled in and preserved. Um, and it dates back 13,000 years. And, you know, from the new uh, meteorite records and asteroid records of massive impact um, during those times, finding whether it's uh, the glass that they get from meteorites or asteroids um, or the diamonds that come off those things, they say that, uh, you know, when you see the massive sea level rise change in that time, and where would most cities or if there were towns or some civilization, if they did exist, you know, we're talking about a 400 mile, I think, uh, drop in of the, of the sea level that would have, you know, if anybody was living on the coast, like all, most of civilization today is, is 80% lives on coastline, you know, where would all that coastline have been if there were 
any older civilization or if there were some remnants of, you know, maybe uh, not as advanced as us, you know, but uh, a little bit more advanced human species uh, or human civilization than we, we see at Mesopotamia, you know, around 8,000, 6,000 years ago. It's, a, it's an interesting hypothesis. He's uh, backed it up with, um, like I said, a lot of, like you said, the, uh, a lot of geologists. Um, so it's interesting stuff. It's interesting to check out. It's interesting to see your take on that. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, but, it, but there is a, a species of hominin, um, a human relative that is found east of Wallace's line. This is um, the uh, so-called hobbits, uh, Homo oh, floresiensis. Floresians, yeah. I've heard of these. Exactly. This, it's, a, it's amazing. And it's and the, one of the things that's really intriguing about it is that uh, so these are are um, um, a species of our same genus Homo that uh, somehow made it across Wallace's line. In other words, they must have crossed that stretch of open ocean in order to reach the island of Lombok, where where their fossils have been found. Um, and as far as uh, you know, uh, was thought. It didn't. It wasn't expected that they would have had the uh, the technological ability to create boats to be able to to cross open the sea. So it's a something of a mystery of how they made it across. And we're talking hobbits, like how big and um, were these people, and like how many of them, how many fossils have they found over there to say like this was like an actual subset of uh, the the mm-hmm. Homo species? Yeah, there were uh, about three feet tall. Um, and there have been uh, numerous individuals found, all from the same site. Uh, there's a cave called Liangbua uh, on the island of Flores. And um, yeah, enough individuals that it has uh, satisfied most of the people who at first suspected that maybe this was just a, some sort of a weird individual that maybe had uh, some sort of a genetic disease or something that made them smaller, made their heads smaller. Uh, but no, in fact, there have been numerous individuals, I don't recall the exact number now that have been found, but um, uh, several individuals that all have those same uh, combination of features, which include making them very uh, short-statured, um, uh, small heads, smaller brain cases compared to uh, Homo sapiens. So it's a really fascinating and really uh, peculiar um, discovery back in, I think the discovery was like around 2004. And how old did they date uh, some of these fossils? Like when was like the last of, of them? So that's something that has, has changed somewhat um, in recent years. The, the, the dating estimates for how uh, recently these species uh, existed. When the paper first came out describing the finding, um, they were being reported as being uh, extremely recent. And I, and I don't recall exactly what the date was, but I want to say it was something like, um, you know, like 30,000 years ago or something like that, that would have made them uh, definitely overlapping with modern uh, Homo sapiens in the same area. And uh, the recent estimates, if I'm not mistaken, uh, are pushing back on uh, that earliest date. So there's still some possibility that they might have overlapped with uh, Homo sapiens, perhaps leading to the the suggestion that that's actually what caused them to go extinct, right? When when our species showed up, they might have wiped them out, um, as uh, seems to have happened uh, in a few other cases, including... Uh, <laughs> Neanderthals, um, mammoths... Uh, yeah, homofluorescence. We don't. We don't, we don't, we don't like always other play nicely with others. Yeah, <laughs> not um, even with ourselves. We're very. Uh, we're a violent species. 
Although we also now know from a lot of genetic studies that uh, we also interbred with Neanderthals and Denisovans, other contemporary species that um, you know that we we interacted with. So uh, you know the thinking used to be, oh, we we just you know uh, conquered, wiped out, or outcompeted these other species that we interacted with. But it seems to be uh, much more complex than that. We seem to, even though that's also still possible, we may have also. But we did also mate with um, uh, some of these other species, and that led to children that were born and 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 raised uh, and reared as as humans. Because um, uh, we all share some of the DNA of Neanderthals and Denisovans in our genomes today. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's it's. I, I don't even know if that relates back to you know the the human idea of you know hope. Or chance that that weird belief we have as a as a species that you know we that we uh, can overcome anything you know that we can do anything and you think about you know love stories and I don't care if this person comes from this family or that family and this is species but like really I mean how how much of a difference or how close are we saying like on just on perception because these these ancestors of ours you know we're talking about forty fifty or even hundred thousand two hundred thousand years ago when we were with Neanderthals how how long are we talking. Yeah, I think we're talking about um, more on the order of, of 50,000 to, to 100,000 years ago. Um, so, yeah, so our, uh, our, um, the first humans to leave the continent of Africa, first Homo sapiens, was around 70,000 years ago. So that's about when we expect a lot of that um, hybridization to have occurred. Yeah. I don't know if I'm anthropomorphizing either because, you know, these were, you know, our closest relatives, but, you know, were they even there saying, no, I, I love this person. I love this thing. It's not actually us, but it looks like us. Like, can we get along with this thing? Can I mate with it? And just like, was there a love story like we can like kind of put together for a movie or a book nowadays? I think it's a fascinating question and one that I've, I've wondered about as well. I I've thought for a while it'd make a great uh, subject for some historical fiction, right? Because <laughs> it, it really does um, kind of capture the imagination. I mean, what you're talking about is actually questioning the definition of what it means to be human. And that's a really a profound question, isn't it? I mean, what we're saying is, you know, how, how, um, you know, how wide a net can we cast when we talk about humans? And, you know, when I'm teaching uh, human evolution, I, I have a slide that I show that kind of represents all of the different species of hominins that we know about. So different um, species within the genus Homo, and then also uh, some of the earlier genera like uh, Australopithecus, um, for example, Lucy's species. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you see when you look at how each of those fossil species um, sort of existed through time, what you see is that throughout most of our history, there were multiple species of human around at the same time, and in many cases in the same place. It's really only today that we have only one type of human around. I mean, this is the world that we're all familiar with, a world in which there is just one species of human, Homo sapiens. Um, but that's that's the exception. That's not the rule. I mean, throughout history, there were all these other species, and uh, it's it's also fascinating to think about, you know, as you go backwards in time. If we could go back with the time machine and go back to the common ancestor we shared with chimpanzees between five and seven million years ago, if we were able to look at that common ancestor today, 
you know, it would have looked very much like a chimpanzee. It was not a chimpanzee, just to be clear. Um, um, chimpanzees changed as they evolved from that common ancestor, just as, as change happened on our lineage. But it probably shared many characteristics with chimpanzees. It would have been, uh, you know, hunched over, walking on all fours, covered in hair, had facial and skull characteristics that looked very chimpanzee-like. My point is that we would have considered it an animal. You know, mm -hmm. if there were zoos at the time, we would have, you know, probably put them in zoos and uh, been fascinated by watching their, you know, uh, interesting and unusual behaviors. But somehow, somewhere on that lineage from that common ancestor up to Homo sapiens, there was a change from what we would consider to be an animal to what we consider to be human. But it is very difficult to say where you can actually draw that line. Is it a fine line? Is it a gradual change? You know, at what point did we become human? That's really the ultimate question that you're asking there is, mm -hmm. is um, what is the meaning of being human and, and what makes a, what, what about us makes us human and makes us not an animal? What does science say about that? How, is, how would science define, you know, what makes us human? Well, you know, I'm not sure it's, that question as we're thinking about it is really a question that science can can define because, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, that's why I think it's so right for, uh, for, for, um, you know, someone who, uh, who wants to explore this as a, as a novel or something. I mean, I think from the scientific perspective, what we can do is look at how we define a species or a genus. We can look at genetic and physical differences among individuals. Our ability to look at genetic differences, um, only, exists for the recent species because DNA doesn't, um, doesn't preserve well over longer periods of time. So we can look at genetic differences between humans, uh, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Denisovans, for example, and then we can compare our genomes to those of chimpanzees, which are quite different. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'm not sure that that really gives us a satisfying answer to the question of what is it that makes us human, right? You know, this is the classic sort of reductionist argument. Um, if we can find that, you know, little bit of our genome that, that makes us different, does that really define what, what makes us human? Uh, and does it help us understand whether we would have, you know, uh, been able to be in love with um, an individual Neanderthal or Denisovan? I, I, I don't think it can. I think it's, uh, I think it's a type of question that, that really science isn't equipped to answer. I love that. Gives much more to the imagination. Um, now, I know one of your focuses is, is evolution, you know, not just in, um, not just trying to make a guess, because I, I think that's very similar to, uh, like you said, with science making an answer. I know you, uh, you were at a lecture or a talk, Richard Dawkins talk, and uh, he had mentioned something or someone asked a great question. He's like, I can't really, you know, elaborate on that answer of, you know, what we, what we eventually may look like or how we'll look like. Um, because uh, I think, you know, like I said, we have a much greater magnifying glass on us as people nowadays. You know, I talked to a carnivore um, medical doctor on the last episode, you know, who was a big promoter of the carnivore diet. Um, and he's an unreal athlete in human. He's like 6'5", 250 pounds. At 53, he's winning, uh, breaking rowing records against Olympians. Like, he's, he's nuts. One, one in a million kind of guy. Um, you know, but we're able to look at, you know, even like food and diets, like, oh, these are the dietary things you actually need every day. And, you know, are we sure 
those are the things every day. So even though we have this magnifying glass on us as a human species, you know, people want to see results right away. We kind of define things in results. So, you know, I wouldn't say the question is, are we still evolving? But, you know, if, if we are, are we evolving even faster? Are we evolving even quicker? And what are some of those, like, I would say those uh, variables that are, you know, enhancing the evolution of the human species? Yeah. So there's a lot there. So, um, right. <laughs> so no, no, it's good. It's good. So yeah, you're alluding to the sort of the question that prompted me to write uh, my book, future humans, um, uh, several years ago now. And yeah, it did come from, uh, attending a Richard Dawkins talk, you know, Richard Dawkins, famous evolutionary biologist. Uh, and he was asked in the Q and a, if humans are still evolving and if so, how, and, um, and his response was that, you know, he, he gets that question a lot, but he, he won't answer it because he thinks it would just be pure speculation. And that really intrigued me because I thought, you know, well, I'd like to kind of see what, what research there is out there um, looking at how humans are evolving today. And it turns out that there's quite a lot uh, and it's scattered across different um, disciplines from um, anthropology to sociology to psychology to microbiology and others. Um, but yes, the, the answer is clear that, uh, human evolution has continued up until modern times, uh, never stopped. Um, it's difficult to say if the rate of evolutionary change is different from what it's been historically. It sort of depends on what uh, time period you want to compare it to. Um, one thing that does seem to be happening today is although natural selection is still, clearly operating. We know that that is the case. The way that natural selection operates today is changed dramatically because of culture, because of technology, because of our societies. Um, it's no longer the case that uh, your chances of survival and reproduction are due mostly to the genes that you happen to inherit from your parents. That is a factor, but it's a much smaller factor for most people in the world today than it would have First been time in history, years we would ago. say, right? Right, right, it's because we amazing. have so much control. So yeah, you know, things like infectious disease have been a major part of our um, evolution in the past. And, you know, I, I have a whole chapter on this in, in Future Humans and the, the big impact that infectious diseases have had, uh, diseases like malaria have left a big impact on, on, our, uh, on our bodies and our genomes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, what we're seeing is that that can still be the case today, although the extent to which infectious diseases, at least up until this year, have affected us is, you know, less than they would have been historically. But, um, but the rest of the answer, which we can get into if you want, is, you know, natural selection is only one of the ways that evolution works. And so one of the things I try to do in that book is to look at the many other ways that people are often less familiar with that evolution can take place. Um, and they have to do with things like uh, sexual selection, how we choose our romantic partners influences our evolution, uh, the evolution of the microbes that live in and on our bodies, the microbiome, um, and many other factors like that. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, uh, uh, we probably are the only species who can, you know, um, who doesn't look at the, you know, the physical nature of, you know, uh, of a, of a sexual mate and say, oh, these are the biggest, strongest genes I need to uh, replicate or multiply. I think on a, a, the evolution, um, 
the subconscious level that happens, whether it's the shape of a woman or the size of a man, like uh, in their appearance, those, those factors are still there that people, you know, subconsciously don't, don't obviously they can't see or can't feel or understand. Um, but you know, the interesting one, like, is, you know, just, you know, as a young guy who's still dating, you know, it's just like how looking back how people did it. And you even look at animals, you know, where, you know, monogamy usually doesn't exist or isn't a factor at all. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, either trying to duplicate or multiply your genes the most you possibly can in order to pass on that dominance of, you know, your, your cells. But it's more even still like the cells on a subconscious level are the things dictating the results. We need you to consume as much resources so you can continue to duplicate our cells in other animals. It's, it's, it's fascinating to think about just on a base level, like that's all it is. Consume resources. And that ties back, we were just talking about Richard Dawkins. I mean, one of the books that he uh, became famous for early in his career is a book called The Selfish Gene. I've read it. Makes, makes exactly that argument. Yep, that basically, you know, the genes are the, uh, the, the factors that are most uh, important to understand when it comes to evolution. And that, um, you know, he, he, he argues this, we are essentially vehicles for those genes to be able to be, be replicated. That's an interesting argument. No, it is. Because, I mean, socially and culturally, like, we've, you know, I'll, I'll still call them experiment, but we've done such an interesting job of, you know, what do you want to say? It's religion or society and culture. Like, hey, this thing called monogamy is going to be the thing that's going to tie and make a big group of us together make this thing called civilization. We're going to kind of push in a positive direction. And it's worked for the most part in terms of, you know, in the improvement of civilization or the improvement of people's health, well-being and prosperity on, you know, a very wide scale, it, it's been good. We've made it happen. And again, this is the first time in this 8,000 year experiment of civilization, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see how it goes because I think there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of evolution, a lot of things that can affect our evolution as a species, you know, with with monogamy with isolation with the the kind of work that we're doing and you know throwing in just different technologies from social media you know that you know are going to affect us you know we're just even looking at it as in generations now the differences between people from the baby boomers to the gen xers to the millennials to the gen zers like we're literally making like cutoff points of like every 20 years and seeing very 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 big differences in people or i mean i wouldn't say those are evolutionary uh, are we looking at like things evolutionary there? Or are we just looking at like differences between humans of that? Or could that potentially be something that we say, whoa, there's a difference in people. I think we're looking at cultural differences there. And that, and that is part of what makes it difficult for us to make very specific predictions about our evolution moving forward because culture does play a role in our evolution and, and, just to, to think about that, I mean, think about the way that culture affects the two most important ingredients in evolution, which are survival and reproduction. Um, you know, culture influences uh, both of those uh, substantially. And um, the fact that there can be gen uh, uh, generational differences in, uh, in behavior and in the, the, you know, things that, that people do uh, how they date, as an example, right? Um, you know, that's something that um, that people are are really interested in looking at, sort of 
generational differences in uh, how we communicate, lots of differences that we can that we can look at that are fascinating. The fact that um, that those differences exist uh, suggests that the ways in which culture is rapidly changing could have an influence on uh, on our evolution moving forward. But it changes so fast that it makes it hard to predict the specifics of how we will evolve moving forward. Because what you really need to make predictions about um, our evolutionary future is to have the same kinds of factors in play for a long enough period of time that each generation responds to them in similar ways. Yeah. And that's not happening. I mean, we have the the internet, if you want to say one big, big, massive thing that could, uh, you know, affect us as, as a planet because you think about the amount of people that have access we're at like half the population of the world about four billion people either have a cell phone or access to the internet which you know we want to say on something that could affect you know the same species on the same planet that there's one factor right there so it, <laughs> it's gonna be nuts because like you said nothing not many things have been continual continuous to make a prediction on the evolution of the species Interesting right there. Um, and the contrary, what historical trends have happened over the past, you know, a few thousand years um, or tens of thousands of years that are likely to continue that could affect our evolution? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is just the size of our global population, right? So that's one of the things that's really been notable over the last several um, thousand years and especially over the last few hundred years that our population has has grown exponentially. Being insane. Um, <laughs> Even the past hundred, is. like you said, it's gone up 7 billion just from 1900. That's right. And so uh, that has a really, really big implications for evolution uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, we already talked about how having so many people makes us a bigger target for infectious diseases. And those infectious diseases are going to continue to affect our evolution. Um, but the other thing is that uh, with the birth of each new baby, there are uh, new versions of our genomes that, uh, that probably never existed before that now exist. And each new mutation, each new version of a gene is a new opportunity. It's a new possibility for um, some trait that perhaps never existed before that might be beneficial in the world that we live in today. And having so many new babies born each year because of our enormous population size means that there's more potential for evolutionary change today than there ever has been before in our history. And so I think that having a large population size, whether it's, you know, 8 billion, 10 billion, or even if it ends up becoming a little bit smaller, we go back to 5 million, um, uh, billion, excuse me, 5 billion, uh, <laughs> not, not 5 million. Uh, I, be a lot I think of dead that's bodies. very unlikely. No, but if we have, um, you know, a, a human population that numbers in the billions, I think that that is uh, going to have an enormous influence on our evolution moving forward um, and, uh, for the reasons that I just described. And that's, that's something that I think has been one of the biggest factors um, of, of the recent past. I think I think, I don't even think I know this answer, but um, if you could, I mean, I think a difference uh, explanation of the differences would be great. Um, what is a mutation, and is a mutation uh, the same as an evolution, or if they're different, uh, what's the differences? 
Yeah, good question. And, and thanks for, uh, for asking that so I can clarify. So um, a mutation is just any difference that happens in the DNA that makes up our, our genome. So remember that DNA is just a, a four letter alphabet. Uh, you have A, T, G, and C, which are these uh, chemical bases that um, basically create a code that tells the body how to make proteins. And proteins are the things that do most of the, the work um, in the body. And this is not just the human body and in, in mm. all life as we know it. And so anytime one of those um, DNA letters changes, you can have an, uh, an A that changes to a T or a C to a G, any change in one or more of those bases is what we call a mutation. And um, this happens all the time. And it happens because when cells divide, they have to copy all of their internal components in order to go from one cell to two cells. And that includes copying, making copies of the DNA. And uh, that is a process that like any time you've tried to copy something, you know, uh, it's not perfect, right? So anytime you make a copy of the entire genome, it is, there's a chance that there will be an error in copying the DNA code. And, and that's what a mutation is. And so every time cells divide, there's, a, there's an opportunity for a mutation. There's a chance that there's going to be a mutation. Most of those mutations are going to be bad, right? I mean, you've got this intricate genetic code that tells the body how to make uh, you know, all of the things to, to make a human body. If you go and you change one, it's probably going to end up being uh, a change for the worse. But every now and then, those changes can be uh, something that actually is a... Um, I don't, you know, an improvement, I guess you could say, or something that's, that's, you know, helpful under the current circumstances. And those mutations are the origin of all of the diversity of life on earth. Um, now you asked whether that is the same as evolution. So evolution is defined as a change in how common different, different um, things are in a population from one generation to the next. So we can look at it at the genetic level. We can say how common is a certain mutation, right? So if we wanted to look at, um, you know, the genes that allow you to roll your tongue, for example, right? So if you can roll your tongue, you know, and do that with your tongue, that's a genetically controlled trait. Some people can do it. Some people can't. I like that trait because I don't think it, uh, hopefully it doesn't offend anybody, right? It doesn't make a difference if you can roll your tongue or not, as far as I'm aware. So, um, so basically, you know, we can look at, uh, how, you know, in one generation, we could look at what is the percentage of people that can roll their tongue. And then we can look at the next generation. And if the percentage is different, then there's been evolution. That is the, actually the definition of evolutionary change. Now, we haven't said why is the percentage different, right? So for a trait like rolling your tongue, we're assuming that natural selection has nothing to do with it because rolling your tongue, again, as far as I know, doesn't have anything to do with survival or reproduction. But if it was a trait that does matter for survival, right? So, um, you know, classic example are uh, the Galapagos finches that have beaks of different shapes. And those that have bigger uh, beaks that are capable of applying more force are sometimes better at cracking open seeds. And that can be an advantage in a year where there was a drought that meant there aren't that many seeds around. So in that case, deeper, thicker beaks are going to become more common in the next generation because there is an advantage 
to the individuals that had them, and they were more likely to survive and pass on their genes. So the mutation itself, um, in a way, isn't really evolution, although um, it can lead to evolution in that it can create an advantage, or um, you know, it can um, uh, you know be a disadvantage, in which case it's going to become less common. So just a trait that is uh, more common or less common over time and time here um, being defined as generation time is, is the definition of evolution. Yeah. So mutations could even be even, you know, cancer because cancer is just, you know, one cell, you know, making or an abundance of one cell that's you know, the body can't use or process or even combat. So, I mean, that could technically cause a mutation in one of your cells that all of a sudden you're just creating way too many white blood cells and there's a complete imbalance. And I think what, too much white blood cells, that'd be leukemia if I'm not mistaken. And I mean, it, I mean that again, that could just be a mutation of one cell, you know, breaking off because of some either internal or external uh, thing that could contribute to yeah. that happening. So actually you're absolutely right. So we actually think about cancer. We can think about cancer as being um, an evolutionary process that plays out within a body. And so, yeah, I mean, cancer happens when cells that normally uh, don't just keep dividing, right? Norm the normal cells in our body have internal checks that, uh, that, that tell them when they're supposed to divide and make new cells and when they're not. But cancer happens when those uh, cells lose their, their check. So it could be a mutation, it oftentimes is a mutation that happens for one reason or another that causes the cell to lose its ability to stop replicating. And um, the cells that replicate more are, of course, going to be more common. And so, um, so that mutation is advantageous from the point of view of the cell has now left a lot more copies of that mutation in the body. But of course, um, it can ultimately be detrimental in that, um, you know, that uh, un unconstrained cell growth can obviously cause health problems for the for the whole body. So it's an, actually a sort of an important lesson there because what it shows is that um, evolution can't sort of look into the future and and sort of be acting with a particular goal in mind. It just happens, and sometimes it leads down a, um, a path that is um, you know beneficial, and sometimes it leads down a path that ultimately is um, is a dead end. I think you mentioned also in the book that mutation uh, rates occur higher in mammals. Um, is uh, How and why is that so? Well, actually, every species has its own rate of mutations, and that's because um, every organism controls um, its, uh, the copying of its DNA in slightly different ways. So the DNA, the cells actually have a proofreading uh, roles. So there are, uh, there, you know, in copying DNA, there's a, a, a proofreading step in which the cells try to um, minimize the chances of a mutation happening. Because as I said, most of the time it's, um, it's harmful. Uh, but each species has its own sort of uh, built in checks and, uh, you know, proofreading abilities. And, um, and so you see variation across all different species. I'm not sure it's true that mammals necessarily have a higher rate of mutation than other animals. Um, it really varies a lot. Viruses tend to have a very rapid rate 
of um, of mutation, and that's one of the reasons why why they're so um, uh, difficult for us to to deal with because um, they're always changing. It's a moving target. And viruses are single cell, right? Or they're in multicellular. Actually, they don't have cells at all. So viruses are weird, and that's part of why I was saying earlier, uh, biologists sort of. Uh, can't really even agree on whether we should consider them living things because not only do they require a cell to to replicate, they don't even have cells. Yeah, they need um, the they host. Have, yeah. yeah, they have a uh, some sort of a of a, sort of an outer coating or um, or membrane or capsid that sort of encases the the DNA or RNA. It can be um, uh, a genome that is made of RNA, as is the case for. Uh, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. It's an RNA genome. Um, and, uh, and really that's all they have is that protein coat and the, and the genome. They don't have all of the other complex uh, things that, that our cells have. Um, so it's, it's a non, if it is a living thing, it's a non-cellular, the only other type of life that, uh, that, that isn't cell-based. Unreal. What's the other one? Well, no, only viruses. So, only so all viruses. life that we know of has cells, and then there are viruses. But their viruses are incredibly diverse. We're still discovering new types of viruses, uh, including some that are much smaller than we thought could have existed, and also some that are much larger than we thought could have existed. And interestingly, there is no form of life that we know of that is not infected by some viruses. So viruses affect all forms of life. And we don't even really know how viruses came into existence. So there's a debate about whether, for example, all viruses share a common ancestor um, or whether different types of viruses came into existence independently. Um, we, really, we really don't know the answer to that yet. I've never thought about that. Because I mean, we can date back bacteria. I mean, even mitochondria is a bacteria that has you know, evolved into our own cells to be the energy blocks of every little cell in our body. So, you know, I, I never even thought about that. Wow, so we have no idea where viruses are, come from. <laughs> yeah, there's, like I said, there's competing theories, and those are essentially the, the two sort of camps, right? Either uh, all viruses um, sort of shared a common ancestor, there was a sort of ancestral virus, and then it diversified into the many types of viruses that we, that we uh, see today. Or um, the virus lifestyle, if you will, might be something that could have um, evolved multiple times independently in each of these different types, uh, very different types of viruses. I mean, RNA viruses, DNA viruses are very different from one another. Uh, there's a lot of diversity within uh, viruses. And, I mean, the world is filled with viruses. That's it's crazy. It's a scary I'm, thing to think about now. Very. But, yeah. yeah. You, you Most of them don't affect us, you know. Um, well, I mean, I think I, I got to take it back to COVID-19 because I know that's one of the the big conspiracies or um, there, I don't even know if this is a conspiracy, but uh, a lot of people say that, or, that people are men making these viruses, you know, I guess smallpox is a virus and people, we can like uh, make man-made ones uh, in labs. Um, I know that was a big problem in Russia when the Soviet Union fell, like, hey, we have all these different strains of these viruses in these um, uh, chemical labs. So, you know, is it, is it that easy to say that you know, we can just start creating um, viruses the way some people are alluding to in some of these, uh, you know, bio, bio weapon where, uh, warehouses or labs that, you know, exist or don't exist around the world. 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of confusion around this, like you said, right? And um, and I think one of the things to understand is that people can't just create a virus from scratch, right? The the uh, concern is that maybe somebody took a, a an existing virus and modified it in some way, but there's no evidence to suggest that that is is what happened. Uh, in the case of the um, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Um, I haven't done these analyses myself, but I've seen some of the analyses that have been done by others. And, um, and you can really clearly see when you compare the RNA sequence of the genome of the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus and compare it with other coronaviruses, you can see each of those mutations that has happened um, even within the um, coronavirus that has been infecting humans. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating that uh, we have the ability to do now is to trace the infection um, between different human populations based on those mutations that have happened in the, um, the, the RNA genome of this virus. And you can clearly trace it back to a single origin uh, in China. And then you can see that it is very closely related to uh, strains of coronavirus that infect wild animals. And so um, the, the original, um, you know, suggestion that it was a, a host switch um, that happened uh, in, you know, uh, I guess in the wet market in, in Wuhan, China, as far as I am aware, is well supported by, um, by the scientific data that comes from comparing the genomes of these um, of, of, of the different strains of the virus. So um, that's very consistent, like I said, with what we know happens from time to time with these um, viruses just shifting hosts from one um, species to, to us. And that uh, seems quite clearly to be what happened here. Uh, yeah. Um, no, because I mean, it was interesting what you, we started going off on, you know, that viruses like or like a unique strain of, you know, species on this planet itself. Um, but if someone were to go tinker that in a lab, like they could, you know, change the, you said it has no, does it have genetic makeup of virus or like, like if yeah, someone you said the wanted RNA to tinker, they could take mm -hmm. the RNA or is RNA and DNA ones. There's different, different kind, correct? There are DNA viruses and there are RNA viruses. Yeah. So someone could tinker it to, but I, I could somebody in a lab like actually program it to say, "Hey, I want you to attack," you know. Let's have let's play into people's conspiracies for a second. I want to make it a high high attacking respiratory uh, pneumonia type illness, or you know, can someone really go in and you know? I know what we've done with CRISPR and be able to actually you know deconstruct uh, genetic codes. Can can people actually do that? The thing is that we really don't understand enough about how these genomes work to even know what changes to make if you if somebody wanted to make that particular type of change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could turn it around and say, okay, if we had that ability, why don't we now go in and reverse engineer it to make it less deadly, right? To make it less harmful. Um, if we had the ability to do that, you can imagine there'd be people out there trying to do that right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that we don't know enough about how the genome of, uh, of this virus works to know exactly what buttons to press, so to speak, right? Which, which A's, T's, G's, and C's do you need to, to tinker with to get exactly the desired outcome in making it more or less uh, pathogenic, more or less virulent, more or less deadly? Um, the, the reality is, is 
for most species, including our own, we still don't know um, how genomes work in enough detail to be able to go in and make those types of changes. I mean, you know, Homo sapiens is the species we know the most about um, uh, in every level, including genetically. And we don't know enough still to be able to make those types of changes in our own genomes with any confidence. So, mm. um, you know, this is a, a virus we've only known about for, you know, not even half a year now. We certainly don't know enough about how to make those types of changes. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't ever know. And so I think it's, you know, it, it is important for people to, um, you know, uh, um, develop the the ethical um, guidelines for the use of the technology that you were talking about, the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. We need to, um, to have more work on what types of uh, genetic changes are acceptable and what are not acceptable, um, because there will come a day when we do have enough knowledge about how these genomes work in order to make the types of changes that you're talking about. But the reality is that we're not there yet. Yeah. I, mean, I know in China, they've uh, really started pushing the envelope on experimentations with CRISPR and in what, you know, what they can do. Because I know, I, I think in the US, it's still pretty, it's pretty expensive, but, you know, we're talking about changing the eye color or changing the hair color, you know, or picking those things out in, you know, your future baby. I mean, that's all technology we have these days. But I mean, I'm sure that's not as advanced of something to study and look at to say, how do we change the, you know, the genetic makeup of an entire species or, you know, a virus, which was, we're not sure what is, um, to recreate that. But, um, but I mean, well, it's, it's tough to get information out of China, I guess, these days on what's actually happening going on, not just with COVID, but, you know, even their, their research with CRISPR and cause I know it's like a wild, wild west of what um, you can experiment on and people or, you know, what even people think is happening over there with, you know, whether it's, uh, what are some of the crazy things that come out of there, the organ markets or, um, you know, who knows? But um, what am I going um, In terms of CRISPR, how far are we along with that in terms of what we can change on the genetic, genetic code of uh, humans? Well, I mean, the CRISPR technology that we have today does allow us to go in and make uh, essentially any change that you would like. You can, you can make very precise, deliberate changes to the genome of any organism with CRISPR. And this is being done routinely in labs around the world now. Um, and, and, and that's not controversial. What is controversial is the idea of making um, uh, a genetic change in uh, a human uh, cell that would develop into a human baby that would result in a birth, right? That is, of course, um, something that we uh, we need to be much, much more careful about before that becomes something that is acceptable. So the technology isn't really the um, the limiting factor right now. The limiting factor is really our knowledge of the genome and uh, and knowing which changes would be beneficial and being confident that those changes that we think are beneficial would also be safe, right? So you want to be able to, like any treatment, you want it to be both safe and effective. So I'll give you an example. Um, sickle cell disease, right, is a disease of the red blood cells that causes uh, the red blood cells to have the crescent or sickle shape 
and it's caused by a, um, and it can be a deadly disease, and it's caused by a single mutation, a single DNA base. One of those uh, A's becomes a T, or I forget which, uh, what the actual um, change is, but it's just a single DNA base. And so because we know that, in theory, it is possible to go in with CRISPR and change it back to what it uh, would normally be in a normal uh, red blood cell. Um, the question is, can we do that safely? In other words, if you make that change, are we certain that there won't be any other changes to other genes? Are we certain that that gene isn't going to interact with any other genes um, in ways that um, could be harmful? So those are the types of things that we need to, to um, be certain of before we can really consider using CRISPR um, you know, uh, widely in, in humans. Um, and that's an example of a gene that we, that we know well. Like we, we understand the genetics of sickle cell very well. Um, most human traits that we're interested in, especially when you get into, I mean, you talked about eye color, uh, you know, hair color, something like that. Uh, it gets much more complicated. You know, the genetics of those traits um, uh, are relatively well understood in most cases. It gets much more complicated when you get into something like height, right? You want your, uh, your child to be tall or a particular height. Could I want, I want a basketball playing play? children, you know? I don't there want them go. to be 5'11 basketball, but I want them to be 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> the next center for the Lakers, right? I mean, so, um, but if, if that's what you want, well, it turns out that there are uh, probably thousands of individual genes that each plays a small role in determining an individual's height. So it's not just going in and making one change. It would be making exactly the right change to all of those genes. And we need to know which change to make. And we need to know that each of those changes isn't going to have any other effect. And then it gets even more complicated because Whoa. as you probably know, <laughs> it's also something that is based on your environment, right? If you aren't fed well as a child, that can af uh, affect your height. If you, you know, do Sleep. a lot of weight when yeah. you know yeah there's so many factors in your life when you're um at certain critical ages that can affect your height so that's actually a great example because most traits that we are interested in are like that they have a lot of genes that um are involved in in affecting the trait and there's an environmental component in the trait so it's not so easy to just say oh we'll just go in and make this little tweak in the genome and we'll get this this um, you know desired outcome, it's way more complicated than that. And so that it's not the technology right now that's limiting us in being able to to you know edit the human genome in, in particular ways. It's our knowledge of the genome and how those genes affect each of the traits that we're interested in. Yeah. So you hear that, people? It's better to enhance your child outside the womb when they're being children or they're growing up. It's still the best way to nurture or enhance. Their, their height. I mean, we have like, you know, human growth hormone now. I think even steroids are taking them the proper form. I mean, can possibly contribute to somebody, but you know, that's uh, not a child. <laughs> We're talking an adult would want to use um, on the incredible amounts of performance enhancing um, substances they've created over the, over the past, you know, I'd say 50, 60 years. And the experimentation they've done on people to know what works and what doesn't work. I think, you know, I mean, I think it's like a, what is it? Testosterone is such a massively used one, you know, to manipulate our endocrine system, you know, especially in 
uh, in men. And then you have human growth hormone, even for children. You know, the fact that we can manipulate our pituitary glands to just start kicking in the evening and sending out human growth hormone to the body to help enhance growth. I mean. Yeah. And the thing is that all of those things that you're talking about um, are things that we can do to ourselves as an individual that will have some effect on us. But the thing about genetic changes that's even more concerning is that those changes could become heritable, right? So if we change um, the, the, the DNA of your child, it's not just your child that is affected, it's your child's child, you know, your child's grandchild, uh, grandchildren. And so that's the, where the ethical considerations become even more complicated because you're, you're talking about um, changes to future generations. Um, and so uh, it, it gets even more complex than just thinking about, you know, uh, an individual's ability to make a change for themselves. Yeah. So we got a long way to go with CRISPR <laughs> now that I'm looking at it in terms of like, it takes thousands of switches to, you know, part of the code in order to, especially when we're talking about height or something. Um, now it says you are a science communicator. You teach science communication. Um, what does that entail? Well, I mean, my uh, own science communication ability, uh, uh, you know, experiences are basically, you know, you, you talked about my book. I, I try to do a lot of, um, public speaking and, um, and you know, uh, try to write about science for the public. And I personally do that because, um, in part because I enjoy it, and in part because I feel like it's important for the public to, to hear from scientists about, about science. I you know, sort of see my, my job and my career as sharing my knowledge and passion of science with others, whether it's students in the classroom or for the general public. Um, but because I think it's so important, I also try to help to train um, other people to be able to communicate their science. And so that's taken different forms um, over the years. So for many years, I taught a course that um, is required for our biology majors at Rice, um, which is a, a course on uh, science communication, both uh, technical communication, scientists writing for other scientists, but also um, scientists communicating to the public. Um, but most recently, I've been co-teaching a seminar course where what we do is we try to bring in uh, guest speakers who communicate science in different ways. So sometimes that's science journalists, sometimes it's uh, museum curators, we've had scientific illustrators, documentary filmmakers, photographers, all different sorts of people that um, are communicating science in one way or another to, to the public. Um, and it's really just a way to kind of expose our students to the many different um, forms that science communication takes and also um, just kind of emphasizing um, the importance of it, I think. You know, we, each, we ask each of our guest speakers to talk about why they do what they do um, and what they found to be effective and, and what the challenges are that they face. So that's a lot of fun. How is uh, that going? <laughs> How is presenting your message to the public right now going? Um, I'd see a lot of people don't trust experts these days or they don't want to take on um, the information being passed down to over people from universities or if they're on television or if they're giving lectures. What's been uh, your experience, let's say, oh, yeah. oh, in the past four or five years? Yeah, so I actually, you know, I, I have not personally experienced uh, that much of that. It's, it's really, um, it's interesting. I get a lot of inquiries about, you know, coming and giving a talk at a, a museum or a church or 
to a book club or something like that. And, um, and, and in my experience, the number of, of those inquiries has just uh, increased over time. Um, so just from my own perspective, I haven't, I haven't seen that kind of uh, a rise in skepticism or reluctance to, to, you know, hear from scientists. I find that people are eager to, uh, to learn, eager to um, ask questions, eager to, uh, you know, have conversations about, um, you know, interesting questions, big picture topics. I love giving these types of, of talks and having these kinds of conversations like what we're having now, because, you know, it's so different from, uh, you know, the, the normal conversations that we tend to have in, in society, right? Um, I think it's really fun to be able to kind of ask the big questions, ask the hard questions, like, like some of the questions that we've just been talking about. Um, and there just aren't always a lot of opportunities to, to have those conversations. And, and personally, I find them to be fascinating and, and important. It's the main reason why I got into this. You know, I, I couldn't play basketball anymore. And okay, I kind of didn't do a good job in university studying anything. I, I was a history major. I love history. I'm, I'm a savant when it comes to dates, times, wise, understanding um, people. But, you know, wh- where's the career in that? So, you know, I get to, you know, now have conversations with people I'm just very fascinated with who have a met- better understanding of the things I want to learn about. And I think my audience wants to learn about. So, um, that's where we've seen, you know, this new explosion into, uh, you know, or a second golden age of radio um, via podcasting. You know, we took TiVo and we said, okay, what's the best thing about TiVo? You can turn it on and off and pause it whenever you want. So with a podcast, we're going to take that into radio. And we're going to create a podcast with that. And, you know, who knew that was the thing that people craved or were really looking for? Because um, it's, it's a technology that already existed. But no, I, I think it's... I, Go ahead. I was say, I think it's great, and it's and I think now as you know, a lot of people are uh, are at home and trying to find ways to you know entertain themselves, to learn something new, to uh, you know um, explore new topics and ideas. I I, I would predict that there's going to be uh, sort of a doubling down on that explosion in, in podcasts as uh, as people discover new podcasts and, and find that they uh, have lots of different ways to learn interesting things. Yeah. I mean, what I tell people, it's like, you know, when they're interested in starting a show because I host a service to help people launch shows, create shows, market it, distribute it. And, you know, I try to explain to them, you know, it's not necessarily making money on the show itself. It's, it's the accessibility you have to an individual now, because I'm sure you listen to podcasts, but you know, you're not listening to podcasts just in the car when you're washing the dishes, when you're going to the bathroom, where you're in, the, in your bed, you know, you have an audience's attention whenever they feel like it, which is so unique. So they're already turning on to you because they like what you have to say or wh- who you're going to talk to. And you're getting them in unique, intimate atmospheres of their attention. So it's, it's very, very, very unique. You know, however, you know, going back into, uh, you know, like you said, you know, getting pushback from people, um, whether they like your stuff or don't like your stuff is they can be very selective on what they want to hear. They don't like what you have to say. I'm going to go over here to find someone say the things that are comfortable with my experience or reality. So, you know, that was the question I had because I, I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, medical professionals, the Bill Gates, um, you know, get the most pushback right now because, you know, people don't want to shut their economy. We don't want to shut our economy down. They, they, you know, I think, you know, your experience of work, um, 
it's kind of sad. People are like, oh, I, I need to be working. I have to be working, you know, because you have you've got to stay, keep your like family afloat, not just because, you know, situations aren't great for people in lower middle classes in our country, but, you know, they're very easily readily pushing back on, you know, experts or people who have experience in these said fields. So that's kind of like why I took the conversation there to see if you were having those same experiences. Um, I think it's really interesting that, hey, I use an Android phone and there's probably some spinoff of Bill Gates and Bill Gates' technology creating Microsoft and Windows and which has led to, you know, improvement in cell phone technology, but I don't want him creating my vaccine. I don't want him creating my medicine. You know, I like some of this stuff here and I'm going to use his technology to say why I don't like him. It's just, you know, biting the hand that feeds you kind of thing. It's weird. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether there's going to be a change in perceptions of vaccines moving forward, right? Because that's one specific example of uh, science skepticism you were asking about, which um, I guess it depends on sort of how a vaccine for, for COVID-19 plays out. Um, but eventually it's, it's quite likely that we're going to have one. And when that happens, um, if the pandemic hasn't already started to die down, that's likely to, to you know, contribute to, to a big shift. Um, and so I just wonder whether that is going to change people's um, perceptions and attitudes of, um, of the importance and safety of, of vaccines. Um, Doesn't look the, like it. Doesn't look like so? it from the, the, the people. I have one of my former guests on the show. He does news and politics from his house. Um, and he's got like a million person following. But, you know, he's not on vaccines. You know, you'll you see the polls that he's taking online. Would you get a vaccine? And, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of followers on a page and 88% saying no. You know, maybe not 100,000 people are taking that poll, but, you know, that's a good taste of that individual's audience. And, you know, like I had someone from um, the head of public health, epidemiology and communicable disease two podcasts ago from Washington state. And she was explaining how this is, you know, and how Dr. Fauci has explained that this is a virus that's going to need a vaccine in order for us to, you know, put it down or keep it at bay and then continuous to make improvements on the vaccine, you know, as this virus continues to mutate over, you know, every season, you know, it's not something that's just going to stop and go away as we see the second, third legs and third uh, waves of the virus happening in these places. You know, I've been following closely and, You'll see numbers go down, but then they jump up to 2,000 deaths again in a day, which I think we're going to have today. Um, so, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, the agreement of civilization, you know, like how do we get people to understand that? And I, I think that's the hardest job you have. And I think a lot of people have is explaining, you know, that, you know, this is one that we're going to need to just keep us afloat, to keep it from dying. Well, yeah, I, and I understand that, you know, um, uh, that, that people are generally trying to act in ways that keep themselves and their loved ones safe. So I understand that when people are skeptical of vaccines, that it's out of concern for their own safety and that of their, their families. What I suspect is going to happen, though, is if and when we get a vaccine for COVID-19, that um, people are going to start to see how quickly that flattens the curve, how quickly that changes the, the spread of the pandemic and that that will um, perhaps cause some people to, to you know, consider whether they might change their, their opinions about um, vaccines or certainly about this particular vaccine. 
Um, that's also, though, one of the reasons why it's really important that people don't rush through the vaccine development process too quickly without go th going through all of the necessary safety checks. Because one of the worst things we could do right now is <laughs> I know rush exactly to, where you're going. Yeah, rush to develop a vaccine that um, either isn't effective or isn't safe or both. And then, of course, you can imagine that would, um, you know, uh, uh, further uh, support people who are um, already skeptical of vaccines. So, you know, we need to make sure, as, even though it's going to take time to do it, we need to make sure that um, when we do have a vaccine that is both safe and effective. Well, that, that's an interesting place I want to take it to then because a lot of people um, who are anti-vaxxers will say that the vaccine or a vaccine that they've taken, I don't know if it's a vaccine for a certain disease, but they say that specific vaccine has triggered onsets of um, what is one of those um, personality disorders. Um, you have Tourette's, you have autism. Autism seems to be one of the things that a lot of people who are skeptical or, or anti-vaxxers um, say that this thing triggers either onset um, autism or it gets, it gets their children um, immediately in, into autism. And I know autism is still a very, very, very uh, um, controversial thing because we, we kind of, we've seen like massive spikes in it in our, in our children. I think it's like one in a thousand now but we don't know exactly what is, um, you know, I, I can't give it the term, yeah. um, create, not creating it, but, you know, uh, making it happen. Um, right. Can't think right. of the exact exciting scientific verb I want to use there. <laughs> um, so so is, is there any scientific proof or, or what is it about these vaccines and autism that people are seeing a correlation to or believe that there's a correlation? Yeah, unfortunately, that um, particular association is something that goes back to a, um, a study that was published uh, some years ago that has actually been retracted and shown to have been false. Um, and so uh, there, there, the short answer is there is no scientific basis at all for an association between vaccines and autism. Now, what some people might be um, correlating is the timing of when um, children tend to get a lot of their vaccines and the timing of when autism tends to start to become apparent, the symptoms of autism, those, uh, those do coincide. And so um, it makes sense that people would start to think that those two things are related because they tend to get a lot of those childhood vaccines around the same time that symptoms of autism start to develop. But it's interesting because I know that there's some research now that is able to um, look at some of the uh, underlying uh, aspects of what happens in autism, uh, even before the symptoms start to play out. And the evidence for those risk factors is actually apparent even before those children get those vaccines. In other words, you can see that that child is going to develop autism in some cases, even uh, before the symptoms appear. And those uh, warning signs are there um, before those children actually receive the immunizations that, are, that some people are claiming are associated with autism. So, so there really is not any, um, any scientific evidence. There's, there's, um, there's actually a book that, uh, that I recommend that's um, written by 
um, one of my colleagues here at Rice, Dr. Peter Hotez, who's been one of the very outspoken advocates for um, the safety and importance of vaccines. Um, that name sounds very familiar. I, I think I've heard or seen a yeah. lecture or talk from this gentleman. He's actually one of our, our regular speakers in the uh, science communication seminar series that I was just talking about. So he's come um, you know, every year for the last several years to talk about uh, how to communicate about, about science to the public. Um, uh, and he does a lot of his communication on vaccines. And it just so happens that he has a daughter who has autism. And so um, his most recent book is, uh, his daughter's name is uh, Rachel. His book is called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. And it tackles that topic head on. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about the, the science behind vaccines and vaccine development, including some of uh, the work that he's done. Um, and it also talks about his daughter and her you know, particular um, situation. And so he's sort of in a unique position to be able to talk about, um, uh, about this exact issue because he is both a vaccine scientist and uh, the father of a, a daughter with autism. So, um, so that's a great place to go to and, and might even try reaching out to Dr. Hotez to see if he'd you know, uh, maybe be interested in being a guest on your show. I, I would love that. Um, you know, I think uh, education is the biggest factor and I think people, uh, you know, we've lived all, we all live privileged lives, I think uh, here in the US. So, you know, the fact that we live very, for the most of us, safe and sheltered lives, you know, when something bad happens and we have no specific reason or place to blame something, we love blaming things. Once we know we have something, we'll burn people if we can, you know, it's like, but when we can't, and especially on the scientific realm where we're, you know, we're, we're making so much change and so much, so many discoveries, like we don't have something to explain it. And I think that's why, you know, you have such a unique position, you know, and it, it already sounds like, you know, I mean, you're already come off with a very uh, compassionate, compassionate tone and compassionate manner, you know, from, you know, trying to reach people, especially one with like anti-vaccine uh, vaccines. Um, let's see. Um, we're going to take this. Uh, yes. The future. I know uh, another big part of your thing. We talked about this last time, you know, it's like, um, and one of the topics of your book in the later chapters is, uh, you know, going into space, um, you know, taking, uh, you know, the human species to Mars or the moon and um, whether it's be the colonizing these, uh, these um, what do you call it? planets, moons, whatever they are. And, you know, especially now we have this, you know, pandemic going on. And I know we talked about last time is, you know, if we, if a baby were to be born on a colony, on let's say Mars, it would be a complete different human in terms of species wise. Is that correct? Or am I off there? Well, I think that what could happen is over generations that you could get evolutionary changes that would ultimately make the descendants of people who colonized another planet um, different enough that we would consider them to be a distinct species. Yeah. And it's basically because that's a pattern that, that has played out on earth thousands of times before. Every time there's an island that um, that is formed and um, a new uh, and 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 you know life makes its way out there. Plants, animals, insects, whatever it is, um, being isolated on an island with usually you know conditions that are different from the place that those organisms came from that triggers rapid evolutionary change, and that is one of the reasons why 
um, evolutionary biologists going back to Darwin have looked to islands as places to study evolution because uh, islands are hotspots for evolutionary change. So I think the same factors would play out for uh, humans living on, uh, on, you know, on a colony on Mars or uh, the moon or elsewhere in the solar system. Well, I think really, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, planets are like, are like, and our solar system are like islands and in the sea, just on a much bigger scale. Well, I think like we mentioned too, I mean, even if we're going to be traveling from place to place I and mean, we have to make sure that there's certain amount of radiation that the sun's going to give off. You know, once we leave that atmosphere that, you know, those ultraviolet rays are going to be hitting, whether it's going to be the colony there or you know, the lack of sunlight or how are you getting light or natural light? You know, you have to create like little bubble atmospheres for you to go out and play in on these planets and on these worlds. And how is the gravity going to change? Or we have, you know, gravity control areas that, you know, either muscles muscle usage goes down or it goes up um so yeah i mean that could easily change over generations and i mean i think it would change it over a massive way compared to you know we've moved across the planet and you know evolution has changed so yeah i mean we what we know is that anytime an organism is moved to an environment that is different um it triggers rapid evolutionary change um but part of the reason i think this will happen faster on other planets like Mars is that um, radiation, as you mentioned, radiation is gonna be one of the big challenges. Um, You know, Mars as an example, has a very thin atmosphere and has no magnetosphere. Those are the two things that protect us here on Earth from radiation in space. And because Mars doesn't have those, um, radiation hits its surface at almost full strength. And that causes mutations to happen much more rapidly than they would normally here on Earth. So not only do you have different physical conditions, but you also have more rapid mutations. And you combine those two things, and that gives you a much more rapid rate of evolutionary change. Now, would we be able to bring, you know, if we're saying we're traveling from place to place, and let's say the species has changed and we see enough evolution between, maybe it's 100 years, maybe it's 500 years in the future, and we have a colony, let's say, would the travel lines, like, you know, planes, um, you know, how the travel lines we have in, in, in the world now are such great carriers for disease, will we be able to take disease from planet to planet or space to space like that? And I mean, would it be, you know, either as deadly or even more deadlier if we did that? I think it's a really fascinating question. I mean, on the one hand, we'll take whatever is, is present in the bodies of the, the people that travel from, from one world to another, right? So when astronauts go to, from Earth to the International Space Station, if they happen to have a, a virus or another infectious disease when they go, they, they take it with them. And the same would be true of people that go to create a, a colony on Mars or, or elsewhere. Um, the difference, though, is that if we have a colony of people living on Mars, and if we're imagining a future scenario where there's a, um, you know, multiple generations that have lived on Mars, so babies are born there, and uh, you know, people are 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 living out their entire lives on Mars, um, there are not opportunities for new infectious diseases to arise on Mars in the same way that there are here on Earth. So as we were talking about before, all of these, you know, about 60% of our infectious diseases on, um, here on Earth come from, um, from diseases that once infected a bird or a mammal. Uh, so 
assuming that we don't bring birds and mammals with us to Mars, which would probably be a wise thing to do, um, there won't be those same opportunities for new infectious diseases on Mars or, or wherever we create those colonies. So that means, you know, there's less opportunity for new infectious diseases there. So it'd be a hybrid, safer world. But what happens if we, we were somehow able to transport a cow or, or chicken to Mars? Um, you know, obviously the potential for a virus to spread or, you know, live inside one of these things that get transported over. You know, the more and more I talk about it, I just, you know, think about the plot of the movie Alien, you know, because that, that was just like, a, like a, a, a whole organism, you know, not just a virus, like a whole organism that jumped from person to person inside this spaceship. So I guess that's how it would, that's how it would go down. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, but the other thing to think about is that um, I, was, I was saying how we would be evolving more rapidly in that environment, but so would the microbes that are causing these infectious diseases. So that's another thing to think about is that whatever, um, uh, whatever microorganisms we bring with us, whether it's viruses, bacteria, protists, um, they too will be subject to the same um, higher radiation and uh, new physical environment. And so they too will evolve more rapidly. So one of the concerns is that although we Jeez. shouldn't be seeing, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, um, that's something that we need to be thinking about as uh, as we start to develop plans for creating colonies off Earth, is yeah. making sure that we're monitoring not only changes in our own bodies, but in changes to any other organisms we bring with us, uh, you know, wittingly or unwittingly. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think of like an X-Men type scenario, um, you know, where these, uh, the radiation's hitting harder, the mutations are happening faster or even stronger or even at a higher rate in all these cells. And, you know, now who knows where it can go to? I think X-Men's always the positive light of where a mutation can go, an enhancement to our physical or psychological uh, well-beings. But, you know, we haven't seen any of that happen besides, you know, the enhancement of, you know, food health or food quality. Um, I don't think we've seen like one happen yet um, unless, you know, I think one of the big ones or the theories is the, the stoned ape theory or, you know, the addition of red meat to, uh, you know, or mam uh, humans 100,000, 200,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago that helped us develop on hunting um, communication skills or even the growth of our brains. I know those are, you know, all still theories, but, yeah, I don't think one like we've had a solid physical mutation yet, um, like you would see in science fiction. Well, we have mutations happening all the time, but they're just not usually as dramatic as the kind that you see in, in X-Men. So, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it makes good TV and good movies. Um, Doc, thank you so much for taking time um, during these uh, weird and crazy times. Um, please uh, let people know where they can find you, where the best place to... Uh, read or purchase your book and uh, if anybody on here is looking to book you you know how they can um, get you coming to the church university um, lecture hall you know, plug yourself away yeah thank you so much no it's really a, a pleasure to to chat with you again and a lot of fun to 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 talk about all these big topics um, yeah so um, basically the easiest way to find me is through my website it's solomon.rice.edu and my last name is spelled S-O-L-O-M-O-N. Um, my book is called Future Humans, and you can find it on Amazon and other booksellers. 
Uh, I've also developed a complete digital course on evolution through The Great Courses, which you can find at thegreatcourses.com. And the course is called What Darwin Didn't Know. And it's all about um, not only uh, Darwin and his development of his theory, but all the many things we've learned about evolution since then. So, yeah, as you said, I love, um, you know, going and giving talks to different audiences and uh, uh, you can find information on my website about how to get in contact with me if you want to have me come and talk. So thanks again. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. No, I'm glad I could keep up and you had a good time doing it. So if I did that, I did my job as a host. Um, thank you so much, everybody else who tuned into the show. If you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. Um, there probably won't be links to stuff there, but um, go check out uh, Dr. Solomon's book on Amazon. That's where I got it. I even had a uh, audible copy. Um, you know, consuming stuff audibly like that is like my best way to do it. So I will I'll not leave a link there, but if you listen to the podcast, there will be links in bio in the description for you to see the course, to check out Dr. Solomon's book and a place where in his email to connect with him, click on that. It'll take you directly to an email to forward over to him. And if you are listening on this podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button there. Leave us a review. Let us know how much you're enjoying the show. If you don't enjoy the show, don't put a one-star review. Just tell me how I can improve and I'll improve for you. And I think that's it. Everybody else stay safe, stay healthy out there. And uh, the bus is out. This is the most uh, for those who...